You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. We had a big weekend for the TRP crew, Kirk DeWitt. We sure did. The only thing that's throwing me off today is that you're wearing a shirt I've never seen before. And this is atypical for our recording. Yeah. I can't tell what it is, but we got a lot of business to talk. Ah, uh, brewery shirt. Understandable. Very unlike me. Might be. I don't wear like sports brands very often. You know, I often on purpose wear, if you look, I'm wearing the Running Public, uh, the Running Public Retro Logo shirt. I often make it a point mm-hmm. to wear them for our recordings, even though I realize in the videos I'm cut off at the neck up and nobody ever sees them. I like dress up for these things right. in our running public gear for nobody to ever see it. Stupid. Mm-hmm. I think it's what I'm wearing 50% of the time around the house is running public. Yeah. So it naturally comes on here a lot. Yeah. Shows up here a lot. You raced. You you had a race that I was telling you off mic here. I didn't realize how much it meant to you. Even though we spend hours together every week and you've talked about it and you've talked about going after the master's record i often have things that excite me but they don't matter as much to me they're just like a, a shiny object and i'll chase after it and then i'll get distracted and i'll chase after it. it's they're always just a reason not always but oftentimes mm-hmm. a reason to get out the door and train yeah but this mattered deep down in like the fibers of your being and i didn't realize that until like three days prior and then i felt a little bad that i hadn't taken your i hadn't taken your prep as seriously because i didn't realize it meant that much so when you said my shins are hurting i'm like hey maybe you just got to bump back and you're like absolutely not you don't realize how much this race means yeah then i realized you were serious and then suddenly your result mattered to me and i was all nervous for you because it's a long race we have a terrible spot of weather to try to race well in, mm-hmm. and you never know what's going to happen. So you didn't. So you didn't know that it mattered to me until you realized I might risk something to go run it. Yeah, I didn't know it mattered at that level. Like, I'm on the other end. I have a race that I told you six months ago mattered to me, and I'm looking for ways to not go. I don't even want to do it anymore. <laughs> and so maybe my own experience dulled my anticipation of your race, mm. but clearly it mattered and clearly you took care of business well and let's not distract from the fact that you still have some wheels and ran a race of your own now you're less public with your some of your racing than i am like i'll share on social media and things like that where you're just you're an abyss of nothingness on social media lately nothing nothingness that's a i'm the void kind of a dramatic way to describe it but let's go with it the abyss of nothingness and you raced a mile and i was very impressed mm-hmm. with your time as well and you you happened to win the race so i don't want to just detract completely um but i do want to talk about my race and oh, we'll start with you we'll get to me and i oh that's gotta be a... i always ensure that we do <laughs> um yeah so and i learned a few lessons this weekend which today's episode um we're going to talk about recent lessons learned or new like recent revel how do you want to describe it revelations just current things that are top of mind that we can teach you through our own learnings right mm-hmm. wouldn't you say that's what today's going to be yeah i think one of the greatest things that comes out of big swings is it reminds you pieces about fitness health life training balance mentality that you knew but needed to be reminded of and while they're top of mind with us we're just going to pass it right down the pipeline to you yeah that's fair it seems a little bit trivial for somebody to be, I feel like a little bit to be like, I want to go for the master's record in something when it's not the overall record, right? Like somebody has done this better than me before, mm. but we need to keep receipts. We need to have our eyes on some sort of prize to keep our foot to the training flame. And for me, uh, the Afton trail race this weekend, 
Um, it's in its 30th year. It has drawn, it had had, it had held some sort of trail running championships at some points for some things in the past years, nothing in recent years that I've done. Um, so it's brought some big names out, uh, over the years. So these records are pretty stout, the open record, the masters, and then they have a grand masters record, which I didn't know was a thing that's 50 and older. When does that kick 50, in? I guess 50. 50 yeah. Um, grand masters. which was also broken this weekend, which was pretty incredible by almost a narrower margin than mine. Yeah. But, um, but I'll tell you what, I couldn't erase more perfectly. It all came together. My mind, my body, my execution, the competition, and in an hour and 42-minute race, I only broke the course record by 21 seconds. So I ran an hour 42.07, and the old record was an hour 42.28. So I was Kirk was cutting it close, Bracken. And uh, I got more of an effort out of my body than I've yeah. seen in a long time. 175 beat per minute average for an hour 42 is something I haven't done to myself recently, we will say. And so I'm still feeling those effects, but mm-hmm. very, very satisfied with everything from the weekend. So, yes, it meant something to me. I hope that record holds for a while. You should That be. was the idea. Unless you break it next year. Which I think I could, but we can get into that maybe later. Well, this, is, this has been a bad time for racing. It's been in the 90s with humidity. And it's funny because I, I work with a few people from Texas. And they always look at us and smirk and think, oh, that's cute. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But 90s with humidity is not ideal race weather. Plus, we've... Well, Texas has been record hot. I think they went like 20 straight days over 100 as the high, which is ridiculous. I, I don't know if I could do what they do. But we also have this Canada poison coming down on us right now where Mm -hmm. the air quality ratings every day for like three weeks were dangerous. And I told I spoke on here where I did my my uh, time trials and I felt poisoned for the next like 24 hours because of the air quality just rocked my lungs. So I know what it's like to put out in this. And then we both did again this weekend, but I only did it for a few minutes, 17 miles of putting out in this. Mine wasn't long enough to feel the effects during. Mm. It hit me like a ton of bricks afterwards. But during, 17 miles is long enough to feel the effects of the heat. You can't you can't just like get done with 17 miles before the heat gets to you. An hour 42 is plenty long for heat and humidity to catch up. So it had to have been a pretty mentally brutal race. Uh, yeah, it it was uh, it was one that you had to stay engaged. For um, the last two years, I just looked back while you were talking. You probably saw me look away. Um, The two years previously, it was 57 and 59 degrees on the start, and both days were coincidentally like cloudy. They're nice days. This one was 67 at the start, and then Mm -hmm. we had sun baking on us, and it was just one of those that when it cracked, it rose into the 80s by the time we were finished racing. And so everybody was slower, including myself, but I was, I don't know, 30 six seconds slower than last year the winner was slower a lot of people really blew up minutes slower but um yeah it was one of those things where we need to um we need to consult with our friend jeremy whitley on uh he sent us like this dissertation of how you can stay up how you can average a heart rate above lactate threshold when you're going when you're breaching it but then coming below it you're like riding over and under lactate threshold because that's what ended up happening to me uh, in this race. And it was one of those things where, you know, I'm 15 minutes in and on my second climb of the day and my heart rate hits 183 and I still have an hour and a half left to race. And I'm like trying to hold back, but my heart rate's still drifting. 
And I'm like, oh boy, like what am mm-hmm. I screwed or not? But the brilliant part of the taper is that even with high output, it was like I could still use my body under those conditions and just enough reprieve in the shade and descending would allow that heart rate to drift down into the 160s for a brief moments. And I think it was just enough of teetering in and out that my body was able to like push again later. And so I had a, uh, I had a younger, so Tyler German, who we've had on this podcast, absolutely waxed the field. Um, he, he was slower than the year previous by almost the exact same margin that I was slower this year. So I think we had equivalent efforts. Um, but I had a good race with the guy who ended up third, um, He's a scholarship athlete at North Dakota State, uh, and I got to look at his back for for 14 miles, and it was very, very helpful. A uh, guy had run 14.50 or 50 or 55 in the 5K on the track this spring and ran 24.01 in cross, and so I was like, first of all, my dreams of running running sub-15 in the 5K are real because I, I beat the kid, and second, I think just old man durability eventually won out there but i had somebody to race with and look at and that was really helpful for staying engaged mm-hmm. in those conditions so i think um very lucky that he was in the race because he wasn't a, comp- a competitor last year so it worked itself out what did you run in cross country in college for the 8k he was 2401 2610 okay i was 2632 so you're talking two to two and a half minutes over a 4.97 mile race mm-hmm. so five miles two minutes that's a world of difference mm-hmm. yeah it shows how much work you can put in after your 20s and still improve and i did that as a 20 year old i ran that now twice the age 40 i think i'd be faster <laughs> yeah. i've got to think i can break 26 32 when i'm in good shape 100 percent. oh absolutely you could because i ran 1639 for a 5k that spring oh you did <laughs> in college <laughs> a little different <laughs> yeah i ran 153 uh, 357 and 1639. <laughs> it showed what type of training I was doing. Why did you enter a five? Why did you enter a 5k? It was the Susan G. Komen 5k that race for the cure. Oh. Lisa's family has several people on, uh, on her, her brother married into a family called the Andersons. The Andersons carry a gene where every female carries a, a propensity towards cancer. Mm. And two of them have had double mastectomies and, the other one in advance had a full hysterectomy. So it's like a, it's a real thing in their family. And so they go, to, they went to that cancer run every year. And I was like, I'm fit. I just ran nationals. I'm going to go crank this thing and just about lost my life trying to run a 5K. <laughs> anyway, it shows like specificity of training. I was in shape to run. I mean, I ran 418 mile indoor that year and got faster outdoor and uh, 1639 5K. And I was in a battle with two guys and we kicked all the way to the finish for a 1639. It wasn't just like- So a, you were working. Give me, that was all I had. Mm. Well, that's good perspective. Yeah. That, I mean, that's what three to four speed workouts a week and 22 miles a week does for mm. you. All quality, no quantity. <laughs> you just don't have endurance. Yeah. So it was it was, it was a good lit, litmus test for the training uh, that I had been doing. Um, the interesting thing is, um, every single climb dude would pull away from me. no, no way was I not tipping over on the climbs. Every descent, I would make it all back up. Hmm. I'd make it all back up, whatever I lost. So we did this yo-yo thing for literally 14 miles and every flat I was catching him. Anytime we could run flat, 
I'm running him down. Anytime we could go downhill, running him down. But on the uphills, just gradually pulled himself away every single time, which is interesting considering he's a collegiate who doesn't train on that terrain, which is a whole conversation about body weight and uphill running and fitness translating and all of that, mm-hmm. which we don't need to get into. But it was my flat running and downhill that allowed me to beat him, um, which I just, I, I'd been running so much uphill, but I just- Which is wild. Yeah, it's just wild. But it's my uphill running that um, had me behind. And I can't help but think that it must be some sort of body weight to engine ratio. That's all I can think of. Well, for sure. it's We try to steer away from talking about how body weight can- really impact running but it's also a non-negotiable that mass is part of the formula Mm -hmm. and where it really shows is uphill we've seen people in our sport of ocr trail running or our little area extend out to other races and be very competitive but the only place they're not very competitive is in uphill running Mm. our very best very best offering we have to the outside world in terms of running was from the men's side was probably john albin and he's a world-class mountain runner, but his weakness is the climbing compared to the other gentlemen. And he's still great at it, but that's where it lies. Atkins is competitive everywhere, but you won't find him in a vertical K. Right. Tyler Veerman has been competitive outside other places, and he's a monster climber for our sport. And he was minutes and minutes back in the vertical K at Broken Arrow. It's wild. So it's just like the, the one unassailable fact is that mass really hurts people uphill. But all your uphill work got you to the point where maybe you couldn't beat him up it, but you could work down and on the Correct. flats after. So he might have been faster up, but it also cost him. Correct. Felt good. Interesting, though. Very interesting. I didn't expect it. But just interesting to see, like, Tyler German is 30, then second place me is 40, and then third place the collegiate's 20. On the head, it's just, like, all over the <laughs> map. Like, how do you even make sense of that top three? It's just so all over the place. Uh which is interesting. The The gentleman that uh, I was able to beat at the end just ran grandma's half in 68. I think he ran five. 68's quick. Something pace. So just good. Comp- I mean, Tyler, Tyler German ran 454 pace at grandma's half. He ran 64 minutes. So there was some legit field. And then there was then there was a big gap behind us. So it was really, I mean, gap behind Tyler German was huge to me and this other, this other guy as well. But um, you know, I think the the big lesson is your taper matters because if you hit extreme conditions that require an output that you're not quite expecting, I expected a five BPM lower heart rate for the first half of the race. It's like you need an emergency plan. It's like for you OCR guys who go through the rings at 90 degrees, because if you slip, at least you can catch yourself in a dead hang position that this like taper was like an insurance policy. Mm-hmm. And thank God it happened because... I had to extend myself even further than I thought earlier than I thought. And so um, backing off before a bigger effort can pay off. I think the back half of a race when things get serious, I think it helped. And then um, then the other thing would just be, uh, I mean, I don't even know what you call that threshold running and beyond. I don't know. But all I know is speed doesn't matter and stay power is all that matters in those long races. Like your ability to just turn over and lose less percentage than the next guy. So you can do all the flashy 400s you want and go rip the track and feel good about your mile repeats, which serve a purpose. But when it comes down to it, all that matters is that you lose less percentage of your top end ability than the next guy. And that's how that race played out. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that tracks with, you know, your experience lately, but. That was it. Yeah. The staying power is king. Yeah. I have three questions for you about your race. 
Totally unrelated. Okay. First of all, hour 42 in the heat and humidity. I saw a video of you drinking, which was, you know, you carried your bottle. I saw mm-hmm. that you had your Nathan Peak belt. How much did you go through? How many ounces of liquid did you go through in that race? Because if you're at 175 BPM, you're breathing hard enough that you don't necessarily want to be taking things in, but it's hot enough you had to stay on top of it. 20, let's call it 26 ounces. That's it. A full bottle and just over a half of a second bottle. She went through one bottle. And a half. And I was dry. Don't get okay. me wrong, but um, yeah. it, I stopped hydrating the last 20 minutes and was just like committed to the task at hand. Um, but yeah, that's it. Less than I should have. And the poor collegiate in front of me had no water bottle. Had The guys it had to be his first run of duration. He had no nutrition that I saw. Kid was just out there like on raw. Like I'm sure he could go back and learn a few lessons and come back and do some damage. I think I just caught somebody with one hand, like one hand tied behind his back, you know, a little bit, but that's all. Yeah. So I went through that much, that much liquid. Uh, I guess the second two are related. You had talked about your shins were starting to flare up, which you haven't had in a long time. And that was always the Achilles heel for you. So you weren't sure if you'd bring your racing shoe out or just your shoe that will protect you. And it looked like you chose the protection route. I did run the speed goat fives, which is a training shoe. Um, you can run fast in training shoes. It's all good. It's an ultra shoe. Yeah. I ran in a pretty hefty shoe and it worked. Which I think is a great reminder for people that our stance on races hasn't changed. It's not the shoe that you're going to be fastest in for the first mile. It's the shoe you're going to be fastest in for the last mile. Yep. And you lived that. Yeah. I'm glad I, I'm glad I chose that shoe. Yeah. I don't think it adversely affected anything at all. I mean, really fitness is fitness, whether I got two more ounces on my feet or not. Like, I think that's some, that's just a matter of seconds, if anything. Right. Yeah. So, yep. Big old clunker, we'll call it. Okay. And what that leads to then is what's your prognosis now? What's going on with these shins? Um, yeah, I played it smart. I didn't run Sunday the week before the race. I, I cross trained and biked Monday and Tuesday, the week of the race, short uphill treadmill session on Wednesday to minimize impact Thursday again on the bike. Friday, just a short little shakeout run. I mean, I'd ran hardly any mileage and they came around in time. I didn't feel them at all during the race. Um, and even here today, I think I'm on the right. What about after? I think I'm on the right side of it. I think I just got ahead of it just in time. Good. So, um, thank God, you know, I, I thought maybe I was a little behind it and I think I potentially was, but I just, I listened when I finally was really knocking on my door and I'll probably, it'll probably pop up here. Once it does, it continues to poke its head once in a while and I'll just listen, but it's not like I lost fitness or anything. If anything, it might've been a blessing in disguise, right? So that's yeah. it. Yeah. So um, I listened just in the nick of time is my answer. So good. Yeah. I don't know what I'm going to do. Um, I'd like to focus on the 5k now coming up, see if I can run fast. I need to recover. I'm still smashed. It's Wednesday, Thursday as we record. I race Saturday. I have no power left. Cellular energy is low. Like when I actually work out, it's a pretty incredible, um, how much effort like that sits. Like, it's just, I can tell it's, I'm going to do some really short, fast intervals tomorrow with a lot of rest. Just let my legs turn over and don't force any metabolic stress just to move, right? Break through the rust, but don't like keep my heart rate elevated for too long. And we'll just see how it comes along. But um, yeah, very happy. Thank you for the messages and everybody very supportive of this stupid little trail race masters record that meant something to me and probably is confusing to a lot of you, but, uh, I hope it sticks around for a while. So that's that, but let's, uh, let's move to you. You, uh, snuck in a mile race last week. 
or actually this week, 4th of July, on the 4th. Yeah. The one that you have won in the past, I believe, I believe, and just casually goes and runs 434 in a mile road race. 432. 432, my bad. 432 in a mile road race, comes down to a kick sprint finish, and you leave all those idiots in your dust. That's got to feel good. Well, they're a delightful gentleman. Nope, idiots. And it did feel good. Backtrack a little bit. I've been trying to get out of going to Palmerton. I called you and you said, suck it up and do it. If you have any any interest in running world championships, you have to go do this. It's your only path in. I was like, I don't want to. I told Lisa, I don't want to do it. I didn't say those words. I used different words. You gave me the, the answer I needed. I said, if, if you want to be just a coach moving forward, that's fine. But if you don't. <laughs> that's true. You said that. Which is okay. As you still have an athlete in you. You got to go now. And. That was the gist yeah. of it. And and so, okay. And you did. You fought a little bit. I could tell it's not what you wanted to hear for some reason. Yeah. But continue. Because I didn't, I didn't want to go. I really didn't. And then my neck and back had been like real on the edge ever since roofing the garage. And during my sim for Palmerton, when I was running downhill from my warm-up all the way through the whole thing, I was getting these like jolts of electricity in my SI area. And I had to like real tighten up my stride in order to i couldn't bound downhill or anything and then last thursday i just had one of those moments where i went uh, and my back went and so si area locked up and i was working from bed for two days i didn't run for a couple days and then i i got real loose one on saturday or sunday and ran an uphill treadmill workout and it, it went okay but then the next day i was back like hobbled and so I stretched a ton and worked on it and I told myself, all right, there's this 4th of July mile I wasn't even planning on doing, but I've run it before. I know what it says about my fitness roughly, but there is a slight downhill at like 600 meters and then a slight uphill afterwards and then flat to the finish. I thought, okay, I made two promises with myself. I said, one, if you can't break 440 in a mile right now, you have no business thinking you can go try to qualify for Worlds. Because for me, I ran 444 coming off the first knee surgery at this race, and I ran 442 or something like that coming off hernia surgery at this race. With That's, that's kind of like I can run in the 440s off of very mediocre fitness because that's my skill set lies in like a two to five minute race. I would like to just jump in real quick and say, again, you saw me looking at my phone. I'm paying attention. I promise. Tell me what place Tyler Veerman took in the last uh, Spartan 3K in Big Bear. What place did Tyler Veerman take? Do you recall? Uh, third place. I thought it was second. Either way. Maybe second. Okay. Podium in a national series race. Yeah. Second. T Tyler just ran 17-18 in a 5K on the 4th of July. That was his race. 17-18. At altitude. Let's just, I'm just saying, I don't know if, <laughs> what I'm saying is, I don't know if Tyler Veerman, this isn't picking on Tyler Veerman. I'm using him because he's a freaking amazing athlete. Mm -hmm. I don't think Tyler Veerman runs sub 440 in the mile right now. So I don't know if that would be necessarily your best indicator True. of Palmerton 3K Spartan Fitness. I understand your logic, but some of the best aren't running. It's not. Okay. Well, you get what I'm saying here. Just wanted to point that out. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll back up a little bit. I, I don't want to say that if you can't break 440, you don't belong going there because that's not true. But fitness indicators for me. I needed something to justify some fitness. I just run 1654 in that 5K time trial type thing I did solo on that cross-country course. And that was just fast enough to say, I've got enough endurance to run for a little bit. 
but it's not like blow your pants off type of speed. And it's going to be a highly anaerobic event. I needed to go highly anaerobic and see where I'm sitting because I can run under like 458 on New Year's Eve That's right. off not run. That was my first time running because I had to squeeze it in. I hadn't run in 11 weeks. So if I can run that off no running and I can run in the 440s off mediocre fitness, for me, if I break into the 30s, that means I have something I'm working with anaerobically and I'm going to need to be able to go anaerobic there. And then the second part of it was if running downhill at mile pace on a very, very gradual but paved road, so hard, jarring impact, but very gradual. If that lights up my back to the point where I can't do it or I'm a mess afterwards, I have no business trying to run down a ski hill in Palmerton. I agree. If this race sets me back, I'm going to get through one round of the race and it's going to lock up and I'm going to have gone all the way out there just to have my back lock up. So I had two things. Got to run under 440 and I've got to be able to run without cringing and without being set back for days afterwards. So that's why I did this. And I checked both boxes, so I'm going to go to Palmerton. I love it. I love it. Now, none of the 5K and the mile mean nothing for Palmerton, but they mean something for me in terms of I can go push, and it's okay to go push. Yeah. Obstacles, compromise running, that's going to be an issue. But I have two rounds to figure it out. And I don't think this is going to be the case, Bracken. And it's okay to get your ass kicked, if that is the case. Yeah, it is. And I don't think that's going to be the case, but what I'm saying is like committing to something. When's the last Spartan race you ran that mattered to you? When's the last National Series Spartan race you ran? 2020, I believe, right? The one I dropped out of with you. Because your calf. Last race I finished was that city field race with Rich Ryan in, in 2021. 2021. Of course you should be nervous. Of course that you this should feel big. Of course you feel like there's pressure on you because you have people looking up to you who respect your you as a human being. And so you want to go and show yourself and people that you belong giving advice. That's the same pressure I feel constantly. It's a privileged pressure to feel. Nobody cares if you take first or last, mm-hmm. I don't think. I think they just want to see you out there trying. That's what I want to see. So to hear that you're going to Palmerton, that's a show I'm going to watch. I don't I don't set aside my time, Bracken, to watch these things anymore. You want to know what I'm going to be doing Friday afternoon? You bet your ass I'm going to be watching. That's all I got to say about that. So you're going. Did you book anything yet? So I'm going to drive. <laughs> Continue. I've been looking at flights like crazy, and it's just all a hassle. The last flight coming back Friday night from there puts me at a spot where if I leave the venue within 15 minutes of finishing the last race, assuming I make finals and assuming it runs on time, I'll have like 40 minutes before my flight. And so it's just to get there. It just, I probably can't get back Friday, but then with the layovers and connections, I can't really get back Saturday until late anyway. And with my back the way it is, I'm not going to run the super the next day, which would have originally been my plan. I'll just fly home, get home at midnight, who cares? But without running the super, it's like, I'm going to be gone all day anyway. And the quickest way home is a transfer in like Orlando with seven and a half hours of travel. It's Mm. so if I drive the moment I am ready to leave, I can just start heading back home, grab a hotel somewhere, stay over, and I will get home sooner than if I flew. And since I'm not going out there to win money, to be very clear, I'm going out there to take fifth place. That's why I'm going. One, to hold my nose to the grindstone because I said I was going to do it and I don't want to do it. And so it's important that I do it. And two, Like the metric goal is to qualify for the finals and try to snag fifth place. 
because top five get a invite to worlds automatic invite at any national series race that's what the that's what zendesk says it's that top five finishers at any national series receive an invitation to register for world championships which would then gives me five months to get up to running fitness where i want to be at but i'm going there to try to take fifth which i've never entered a race thinking that before but that's why i'm going and so if i'm going there just to do that this will be the cheapest route. This will get me back home to my family the quickest. So that's what I'm thinking about doing. How long is the drive from Milwaukee to the Poconos? 12 hours. Oh, that's less than I thought. I mean, it's long. Don't get me wrong. I'll split it over two days. Uh-huh. Okay. I like that. Even flying out Friday morning, which is not a good idea, but if you have to, you have to. Even then, it's like a seven hour because I can't get there direct on Friday morning. So I'd have to fly somewhere like Philly or somewhere, and then drive up. It's going to be a seven-hour day of travel on Friday to get there and race. So you have to leave Thursday anyway. So Mm. driving Thursday and getting there Friday, I can split that up over two days pretty nicely. Okay. Who's who's showing up that you know of? Uh, Supposedly Atkins might come out since that's a drive for him. He can just drive straight down for that. Allegedly Austin Azar, mm-hmm. Robert Killian, mm-hmm. um, Thomas Van Tonder. Uh, we might see Gachet come on over again. Mm-hmm. And then you never know like if who's going after the series that didn't do the first two. So you might get Hawk Call, you might get Rylan, you might get, I don't know. Tyler. Kempson could come down for kicks. You never know about Kempson, but it's near where he right. lives. So, And then you have all those kind of like Beast Coast racers there who are good. I like it. I like it a so lot. It won't be a gimme for sure. Not going to be able to commentate. You're not going to be able to commentate this one. That'd be a hard no, task to pull off. Answer. All right. Congrats on 432. First of all, that uh, that's impressive considering that hasn't been a focus of yours. Top end speeds, speed extension, yeah. we'll call it. So that has to be some confidence. And I'm still heavy. Yeah, and you're still and you're still heavy boy. You're thick boy. So. I feel good about it. I'm glad you're going. Yeah. Good. Thank you. So the, the whole rate, I went out at 70 on the dot. Like, I'm just going to run 440 pace, give myself a chance, and then slip under at the end, hopefully. And luckily, no one wanted to get out hot. But I was able to just run right at that and see how it felt. And Kirk, I have to be honest with you. It felt so comfortable. Until it didn't, I bet. Like a painful, but I made it that way. So there's this slight, slight, slight rise before the finish. And in front of their fire department, the fire truck each year puts its boom arm out over it, and then it sprays water. Mm-hmm. And it does; it's not on when we're going through, but they'll spray for the back of the pack, and then for the parade people, they'll like they'll, they'll spray for that. And we're we're in a pack of five. There's four kids from Carthage. Uh, it's a D three college around here, and myself, and I was just tucked in. And we lost one at eight hundred. We lost one at twelve hundred. And at thirteen, what I thought was thirteen hundred meters, um, I moved up right onto the shoulder and then as soon as i saw that i was about 200 meters it was hard to gauge in a straight line road race right it's just dead straight but boom arm is about 200 meters away i made a really aggressive gear change like one of those i just don't come with me kind of things Mm -hmm. and ran really strong for 100 and then it started to catch up with me but i was still working hard all the way through and as you get closer to it you look past it and the finish line's 150 meters past the boom Mm -hmm. arm (laughs) So I'd, I'd misjudged by 150 meters and I like lactate overload, trying, fighting as hard as I could not to just tie up completely. It was like the marionettist was behind me with all the strings pulling on my shoulder blades backwards. It was, 
it was a really long last 150 having guessed wrong thinking i had just crossed the finish but no now you have 150 more to go so i was i probably looked back like seven times in the last 100 meters (laughs) i was just full-on anaerobic overload and i couldn't function afterwards like barely my vision was as blurry as it's ever been in my life working out uh i was like on wobbly legs i was trying to walk over there the only shade in sight was a nursing home across the street they had an overhang that all their uh their clients were sitting underneath with the caregivers to watch the parade Mm -hmm. and i just needed to make it to that shade And there's a slight little dip in the grass that went down, and it felt like I just run an ultra. Leg gave out. So a jelly leg mm-hmm. going down it, and I got there, and I sat. Yeah, and I sat up against their wall, in the shade, and eventually I had to lay down on the ground and just close my eyes and breathe. And it took 17 minutes for my heart rate to get under 140. Wow. If someone would have come up and offered me death, I would have taken it. <laughs> and I texted you all this, and you're like, "You are so dramatic." I did say you're dramatic. What was your, what did your heart rate hit at the end of that? I don't know. Cause I didn't have it on during, I turned it on at like 10 minutes into my death zone afterwards to see, cause it felt like my heart was just pounding out of my throat mm-hmm. when I was laying down. So I turned my heart rate monitor on just to get a, a read on it. And then just kept checking it every like minute. And it just, I was at one fifty, one fifty two, like 14 minutes after the race. I just wouldn't That's drop. Good it. effort right there, Bracken. So it was really bad. Great race. My body was completely unprepared to handle that type of oxygen debt. Yeah, and you used to expose yourself to that feeling multiple times per week or a version of that in training and then in racing at least once a week in college. It's just yeah. it's interesting when you uh, you lose that arrow in your quiver, not lose it, but you're unfamiliar with it anyways, and you forget mm-hmm. there's not much worse intense pain than that pain. That last 20 to 30 seconds of that mile for you is probably the sharpest pain you've felt in recent years. Most people will never have the privilege of feeling that pain because they can't even get there or they're running races that are too long to get there. I didn't feel that intense or sharp of a pain this weekend in my 16 miles, I'm sure. Although yours was shorter lived. It's just compressed to that one minute of death. Yes. It's when it, when it, the, the coin turn flips, it flips hard. To put in perspective how I closed, what kind of move I made. My last 400 meters was 63 seconds. Wow. And my last 100 meters was run at 445 pace average. <laughs> Which would be like a 70, 72. Two. 72. 72. Yeah. So I ran a 63 and 100 of those meters was at 72 pace. Yeah, been there before. So I really made an aggressive move. It worked. <laughs> it was very aggressive. And it would have looked beautiful had I remembered that that's not the finish line. Doesn't matter. How much did you end up winning by? Uh, two, two or three seconds. Gapped him enough to make him lose hope. That's what you did. That's all you need to do. Yeah. And then we all died in. In my uh, in my race, it was the same thing. Same thing. Yeah. I got beat on every single climb of the day except the last one where I was running next to him and I said, not this one. And I put such a move on and he expected to pull away that by the time he had a chance, he was already mentally broken. I ended up beating him by a minute 15 and I didn't pull away till four minutes left or five minutes left. So when it went, it went. Oof. But that's what when you make the move, point being, make it to the point where like yeah. you might be kidding yourself, but guess what? You're kidding them even more, enough to break them, and you did it. That's the point. And that's what I thought. As I shifted, I thought, just just don't want to do what this is. Just don't want to do this. Hurt me to hurt Please. you. Yeah. So, But Kirk, all the old miles I'd ever run were all just waiting there in me. I paced it perfectly. I felt comfortable in that stride. I haven't run mile stride in a long time, but the stride felt right. I felt relaxed. The last, 
again, the last 200 was death. But up until that point, it just felt right. I kept thinking, man, if the race was just at 1K at Palmerton, <laughs> this would be delightful. Because that, that piece is still there. So it was cool to go back and try that type of run again. Because that's my... That's my sweet spot. Makes me want to train and run a mile. And maybe you should. Um, but it would, you know, it'll see if it's there uh, with incline and while there's blood shunting with upper body requirement, we'll see. But it's a good start. I'd rather that start than a different start. Yeah. Yeah. Moving into Palmerton, I've got two of the pieces I need. I can go anaerobic and stay tough and like lactate overload. And I can hold on for 16 to 17 minutes of decently high-end running. So now it's, like you said, hills and compromised running. What do the obstacles take out of me? Because I shouldn't have much efficiency on them. But I get two rounds to try to gain that, knock that rust off. So I've checked two of the three boxes. Fifth seems attainable if I perform well. Can't wait to watch. That's all I know. <laughs> Looking forward to watching. Um, so we talk about... Uh, our races we we drug you guys along for 40 minutes listening to us talk about our races i'm sorry about that but sometimes we get excited too and that's just the way it is Mm -hmm. right we haven't raced in a long time no well i had raced in april and then january before that you had done high rocks in may march december or january no with with rich that was that long ago Mm -hmm. okay never mind it's over the winter yeah silly me (laughs) but you know there's always things we're learning and as you mentioned before we started blabbering about ourselves is that running races and the lead up and aftermath are always good you always are reminded of lessons or you learn something new or it just brings something to the surface that either you forgot about or weren't paying attention to before and then you kind of it recalibrates you of sorts at least for me a hard race whether it goes good average Mm -hmm. or poorly is like a very good recalibration of like everything fitness i don't know about you if you feel the same way but for me it's like for sure recalibrating so Mm -hmm. um so we want to just chat out a few things that we've been either hearing from others that are worth chatting or things and thoughts we've had ourselves and so I don't know if you want to you want to dive into details with one or two of the things. Can I? Yeah, well, yeah, I think you should since we're, we've been talking about your race. It's top of mind. Um, go ahead. Yeah. I want to start because the thing I want to talk about starts the race off. And it's right from the start mentality of pacing. Because one thing I've really, really lost track of in these last, what is it, five or six years now of some sort of injury every year is consistency in racing. That has gone out the window. Five or six years of disrupted training and racing means that I have lost the feeling to some extent of what race effort and pace should be for my current fitness because how many times have I come on here and say, I just don't know what my fitness is because I'm doing rehab style training or I'm doing incline training and incline training is great, but it doesn't teach you your 5k effort, Mm -hmm. maybe effort, but not pace. Like how do I match it? And, and so what I've done the last three times I've competed and I count my sim as a, as a competition. So my sim that 800 meter road race I did in this mile is I tried to step off the line into the stride I intend on using the whole time. I've just stopped going out fast off the line. Like, yeah, those, there's, we've talked about it, those phosphocreatin bonds that'll burn for free for 12 to 22 seconds or whatever, depending Mm -hmm. on your level of training that has led them to be able to last longer. 
But for me, not doing that style of training and not being used to that, it sets me up for failure because all I can do is settle into a stride. And it feels like settling. Mm -hmm. Not like, ah, I've settled down. Oh, I've settled for this. I can only get slower the rest of the race. And my heart rate response jacks up right away. So even though it's supposed to be free 10 to 15 seconds of energy... My gasping and breathing and like, it's all, I guess, gasping is breathing, but my breathing is ragged and my heart rate is up in my throat already. I don't like it. And so I've just tried to practice rolling right into the pace I'm going to use with options to go faster. And in that 800 meter, it left me in a place where I didn't tie up and I was able to make a move in the second half. And in the mile, it allowed me to be there at 1,200 meters with an option and to decide to make a drastic move at 1,300 meters. We've run enough miles to know that that option is not always there. And yes, 432 is very fast for some people, and it's very slow for other people, including us in the past. But it's fast enough for my fitness that I knew I gave an honest effort and I still had an option to make. And then in that sim, going through, trying to hold back the first round so I could run the second round a little faster, and I was five seconds faster the second round of the sim, and then try to be within 30 seconds of that on the next two laps of the next one, which I was, it just reaffirmed that there's nothing I can do in those first 15 seconds that are worth going out hard in those first 15 seconds because it sets a tone for how bad it's going to get. And the other piece is that that free 15 second burst if i only get seven minute to 10 minute recovery in between round one and then round two there's not a guarantee that i'll get that same recharge afterwards and be able to burn through that free again so suddenly you're slower off the round off the line in round two in palmerton and then slower in round three and it's feeling worse and so again you're like settling i've settled to this is the best i can do so from a mental standpoint a physical and a pacing i've really tried to focus on I'm going to mitigate my lack of of high-end fitness and recent experience with optimistically cautious pacing. And it's worked for me three out of three times. And I think that's worth talking about for a few minutes. So uh, beginning the race at intended pace instead of... Oh, sorry. And the 5K time trial. That's how I started that one as well. Okay. Rolling off the line. I stepped off the line. Mm -hmm. Just stepped off the line and then started jogging and running. But right into the stride, I wanted to hold, not into get out, settle it. So I'm four for four with that. Maybe maybe that you get to use that free, we'll call it in quotes, energy once. And a lot of times that's, this is not how it works. This is not science, folks. So don't send me a message about it. But maybe, you know, would you have had that kick? Or the ability to hold on towards the end if you had gone off the line into the front right away and then you were 5 BPM higher initially a quarter mile in. No. You know, you look at um, Jakob Ingebrigtsen. Look at, I'm going to say three out of four starts of his in the 1500 unless he is chasing that time. The gun goes off and he just rolls off the start line to the direct back of the pack instantly. He loses five three to five yards on the leader within 10 seconds and just rolls. But then when it's time to tighten the screws Mm -hmm. at the end, guess who's pulling away the guy who rolled off the start line. And so there's a little bit of that, that you even see pay off for the pros. So I can get on board with that. Yeah. I think, I think that, and there's a difference between running fast off the line and running fast and relaxed off the line. And I think it's very difficult for non-professionals 
to use that 15 seconds burst start in a totally asleep manner. Yep. It's really difficult to do that. And since if I can't do that, I'm not going to bother. Like how many seconds am I going to gain in that first hundred? Versus how many am I going to tie, tie up and lose at the end? It just, you're exactly right. It wouldn't have been there. So let's give myself an option later. And it didn't mean that I went out slow. It mean, means that I went out appropriately. Yeah. So all you coming up with races this weekend or next weekend and the cliche sprint off the line, even though it's a two hour race, get your heads out of your butts, folks. That is foolish. And even, even more so in the longer races, you could justify it in a mile. Heck, even a yeah. 5k, if the course got tight or something, you could justify positioning early on. But all you damn idiots out there sprinting off the line in a three hour race, which you have no business doing. Just remember that you'll be passing the other idiots the second half when you're the one who just like decided to have fun off the line a little bit. I, I'm going to use the, the word idiots appropriate. I don't mind calling people idiots. It's true. I mean, I've done it, so it's pot, meat, kettle. But you're right. That's a good reminder for people. Yeah. For sure. Like that one. Do you remember back to the Alabama Spartan race when it was part of the National Series? Oh, yeah. You went out hot. You were you and your split shorts were right up there, brother. Yeah. I didn't like how I raced in Jacksonville the month prior, and I hadn't engaged in the race. And so I did a block of speed work, and I said, I'm just going to commit to the front no matter what. I, I I can't win the race, I don't think, but I'm going to get myself in the race so that when things split apart, I have the ability to hang on to the front rather than be stuck just in Nowheresville. Because we're all going to run the same pace in the second half anyways. I might as well get up in case a break occurs. Mm -hmm. And I went up and I led, but I led aggressively. And I, and I maybe and I didn't lead for longer than 100 meters, but then I ran in second or third for the first mile. And then we hit some obstacles, and I came out tired, and my only option was to get caught at that point. Mm -hmm. I couldn't do anything else from that part because I had run too hard. I couldn't relax into my stride anymore because I was already overcooked slightly. And it was that's just what I was trying to avoid now in this rebuild and everything is be the person that has the option to go faster or hold on rather than the person whose only option is to go backwards. So it doesn't mean be a, like a wimp out there and it doesn't mean be slow off the line, but it means run the pace you know you can keep the whole time no matter what and give yourself the option to go burn some matches later if you want to. I think three quarters into every race, whether it's a mile or a 16 mile trail race like I did, I have never run my best race unless I'm still a half to three quarters into the race saying I I could still make the decision to do something here. Like if yeah. I need to go, I can go. If I want to put a move on, I still have that card. I that match is still in there. I haven't used it yet. And you're like, yeah, I'm just biding my time. I'm biding my time. I'm biding my time. And I'm going to strike when it makes the most sense, which is what you did. It's exactly what I did. I still had decisions to make an hour and 35 minutes into that race. And I made the last one and the one that I thought counted. Right. And so I think just like if you ask yourself, like, is there any decisions to be made with how hard I'm pushing right now? And you're in the first stages of your race. You might want to rethink the effort you're putting out at the moment because it's probably going to wipe you on the back end. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a, I think that's a lesson we're always going to need to rehear, to be honest. And you know what? It's universal. Cassie and I, who Cassie was on the podcast and I referenced her last week, but we had a coaching call this week and she's only two weeks out from her 
return to run that Beaverhead 55K. So this is her first race postpartum. Awesome. And we were talking about strategy, and I'm like, tell me what you're thinking. Walk me through your race day plan. And she walked through the same strategy I employed in the mile. Sure. Word for word almost. I could have written her strategy. She could have written mine. And it was, mine was get to 400 in control. So a quarter of the way through the race in control, and then don't do anything in the next quarter that sets me up to fail during the third quarter. And then if I'm feeling good during the third quarter, I can press the issue slightly, but my goal is to get to the end of the third quarter feeling good so that I can then make a move in the final 400 meters of the race. And her thing was the exact same, like approach the first climb. It's like a 10 K climb out of the gate. Approach the first climb, not the way I should feel on that climb, but so that on the next climb, I can work honestly up to the peak. Mm -hmm. And on that one, if there's another gear to be had, it's okay to not use it yet because what I really want to do is get to the next aid station composed because there's a big, sketchy technical downhill to get through. And on that technical downhill, if it's available, I'm going to work a little, but I really want to get to the bottom with my legs intact so I can run the last 8K or 10K of the race really well. And in the last 10K of an ultra, there's still minutes to be made up. So it was the same exact strategy, which is I could take it now or I could keep doing well and only take half a gear now so that my next stage of the race, the decision's still available to me there. Rather than I think I could climb a little faster right now, use it, and then on the next climb you already are you're out of decisions. So from one mile to a she's she's gonna her goal is to get down in eleven hours. So from four minutes and thirty two seconds <laughs> to an eleven hour goal race, the strategy was identical. Yep. Just make it one more stage before I have to decide if I really want to go or not. Case in point right there. I use the term stay asleep. You want to work as hard as you can while still staying asleep. Mm -hmm. Like before you have to mentally engage to keep pacing. I don't know how else to describe it, but most of my people, if they got a race that's two hours or more, hour and a half or more, really, they, they, I'll sound like a broken record, but I use the term stay asleep. Like you want to stay asleep. And then eventually you choose to mentally engage to keep your effort. But in the beginning, mm -hmm. and even in a mile, Stay asleep, if, even if it's for a quarter mile, if it's for 70 seconds. Especially. Stay asleep. Stay asleep, stay asleep. I don't know how else to describe it. You will most likely run your best race that way when it comes to finishing time and placement. Yeah. Yeah. I like to think of changing gears in those races like you've set it to cruise control on the highway. And then you can just click usually somewhere on your steering wheel to go up one mile per hour mm -hmm. and one more mile per hour. You don't really feel the engine do anything. But it's not like you have cruise control on, you stomp it, move up five, five miles per hour and re-engage cruise. No, you just tap one mile per hour, tap two, tap three get there maybe get over the rise first and use the momentum going down the back side of the hill to just raise up a mile or two like you don't want to see the rev limiter like twitch right you don't want to see that needle really spike up at any point until you want it to but then you haven't stomped your foot yet and when you do there's going to be a response but you can't have used the heavy foot to get there in the first place you don't you want to see that that throttle just sitting there at a nice low manageable gear even at a fast pace as long as humanly possible yeah i agree with that that's a lesson i think i was reminded of as well in a, in a very different race this past weekend any other um what else comes top of mind or otherwise i'll jump into i'll jump into one but um i think you said you might have had two yeah you go now you i want to start with the start of the race okay well that echoes also something that i wasn't going to talk about but i was reminded of that i fell back immediately from everybody was gapped by a 30 seconds to a minute in the first five minutes of the race, literally first mile. Anyways, I let him go knowing that I'll see you later. 
based on conditions. Um, I will say, if we're going to go from the start, um, conditions make a difference in how you should approach a race, a longer race. In a mile race that Bracken's talking about, um, it doesn't matter. It's a mile. It really, I mean, God, so subtly, fractions of a percentage, it matters in a five-minute race, if at all. You agree with that? Yeah, I said that before the race. My parents came with me. We were driving. They said, this is going to be a hot one. I said, yeah, but it won't matter till afterwards. I agree. Maybe it helps. Your muscles are so loose. Like, it's too short to impact you during. Yeah, and if you're running fast enough, you got a cool 15-mile-an-hour breeze blowing past your body. That's right. Uh-huh. Um, so part of my strategy, and this was just foresight after years and years of racing, you step out the car and it's thick and humid and the sun's already crested the trees and you look at the temperature. I watch my heart rate on the warm up and I'm like, oh, this is going to be a day. And um, and those who manage their effort well early typically fare better late. And that is in hot temperatures. Cardiac drift is a real thing, folks. For some of you listening who are racing Utah this weekend, historically hot under the sun. For those of you who are racing Palmerton in a week and a half, especially the afternoon 3Kers, uh, it's like 80 to 90 and 90% humidity. It can absolutely, like your cardiac drift of 5 to 10 beats per minute is real. And I have never checked my heart rate so much in my life then in this race saying you got to make some sort of rev limiters. You have to put a ceiling above your head, which you can't breach. At least do your very best. Who cares what they're doing? Who cares what pace it is? What you need to worry about right now is being able to close. And if you can't close, in my mind, I said you're not getting the record if you can't close. The most important miles are the last three. They're the most technical. Mm-hmm. They're the slowest in the course. And if you can't be aggressive in them, you bleed out, I will say, minutes if it goes bad. And it is true. You haven't run on this portion of the course, Bracken, so you can't visualize it in Afton, but it's very single, narrow, single track, lots of rocks, ruts, turns. You got to be aggressive in and out and up and down. Point being, um, managing my effort early and being a slave to knowing my body and my heart rate was the, I think, the only reason that I was able to still perform how I wanted in conditions that were a little unideal. It, I mean, there's worse conditions to run in. I could have raced at noon. It would have, I would have never got, there's no way I couldn't have run that race the right way to get the record. There wouldn't have been a chance. But point being is for those of you coming up who are racing hot, and we have a couple months now of this, is if you know your body, if you are someone who pays attention to your heart rate, if you're somebody, I created a rev limiter, and even if it spiked on, you know, the 250 foot climbs, which most of them are, as soon as I got back to flat, I said, you need to get that heart rate to come back below 170. You got to at least see 169 before you can re-engage in your pacing and you can't you can't let it creep. Not yet, not yet. And I got an hour into the race and then I said, I'm done looking because now it doesn't matter, it's time. But I really think for those of you who are dialed in the heat like that, it is the best way to, to run is to create a rev limiter, try to abide, make sure that heart rate's coming back down on the descents or at least it's responding when you back off the gas then you know you're in somewhat control of your effort. But anyways, I just think it's very important in those conditions, piggybacking what you said to manage your effort early and set rules for yourself. And I think that's part of the reason why I was able to do, I mean, I was checking my heart rate every 20 seconds on the climbs and every 20 seconds after cresting compulsively, man. And then eventually again, the first hour. So I just think that's a tool you could use that um, a lot of people overcook without realizing it early. If I had to guess... I cl- top the climb, the first climb, I'd say, oh, I'm probably at 173. 
you know, I'm guessing like how hard I'm working. Like, I feel like I know what this feels like. I'm about 173, whatever. Look, 183. I was 10 beats per minute above what I would have predicted based on my perceived exertion. Do you want to know what happens when, when that's what you do mm-hmm. as a theme throughout the first half of your race? It's over the back half. And so just being, keeping it in check, um, early will, will save you late. There's a time and a place to ignore those metrics, but I think in the heat and humidity is not one of them in a longer race. That is, if it's a 5k go, but it's, it, it's not what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're a hundred percent right. And, and the thing is you can race and you proved it and the mile short enough, it helps prove it, but it's not as definitive, but you can race really well in the heat. But the problem is if you make a mistake in the heat, you don't come back from it. And so you're right. People in Utah, people in Palmerton, people running ultras this weekend, if you tip, you don't come back generally in the heat because not only do you have to get your energy back or like you're talking about the intern, like if you go too far anaerobic or if your heart rate gets too high, that's all well and good. But your core temperature spikes as well. And that takes a concerted effort to bring down. Mm. You're talking 20 to 30 minutes of something external cold source cooling you down until that comes down. So the tipping is not as simple as, oh, I can just relax on the next descent. Because once you tip in the heat, it's it. So you can run really, really well, but you have to be precise and early warning sign, I back off. And I pay attention to every early warning sign so that I can make a push later. And you can push hard in the heat. You can push plenty hard. You just don't want to come up short and you don't want to tip too soon. Yep. I remember two years ago and last year, my first sip of water was an hour in. I waited till an hour in to start drinking my one sixteen ounce water bottle. Mm. Took my first sip 10 minutes in this time, got ahead of it, thinking ahead, just like you had said. Um, and I think I would start that approach. We're going to give people tangibles. I think any race under a 10K for me, I'm not looking really, to be honest. Probably should, but not gonna. But if I'm, I'm splashing. Sp- no, I'm looking at my heart rate monitor. Oh, I thought you were talking starting water. Sips. Oh, I, maybe I would. I'm talking heart rate. I probably wouldn't even be. I'd be still perceived exertion. But if I'm going beyond 45 mm-hmm. minutes to an hour, I may not even look up to an hour. That's going to be sort of my line. I feel like I can feel it out. But when you get to those longer races, it's just compounding interest if you miscalculate slightly. So I don't think it's necessary for a lot of you running shorter than an hour or shorter than 45 minutes, but when it's extended beyond that, that's where what I'm talking about comes into play much more. I would agree. Yeah. Um, okay. That's, that's, I'm good with that one. Okay. I guess I did start chronologically early, but out of sorts. Okay. I think it's a good time to remind people about the fact that warmups will lie to you always as a runner on a race day, but especially in the heat. Your warm-up is not to be trusted. I, Kirk, I think I had a top five worst warm-up experience of my life before this race. Sluggish? It was so hot. It was so humid. I was, yeah, so sluggish, so drained, entirely drained of energy where every movement felt like it cost me my entire store of energy. And I had no pop off the ground. I, just like you were swimming in like a pool of sludge. Mm-hmm. And I, I had said it out loud prior to to Lisa that like this is going to be the worst warm up. It's going to be so bad. I'm just, you got to go in knowing that it's going to be bad. But even going in knowing it, I still had to every movement force myself to not care about how it felt. I had to force myself to hold to my warm up plan and then trust it all the way through to the end. And it was really, really demoralizing. And I was so intent on not letting it be a depressing moment. But warming up when it's 91 degrees out with 
whatever percent humidity feels terrible because you're not in race mode yet. You're kind of in regular life mode, but you're just dripping sweat, soaking through your clothes, feeling really bad. And that's a very disconcerting feeling when you're about to try to go put out on the course. But the moment the race started, the body just responded and felt normal-ish again right away. But your race warm-up lies to you more than ever in the heat. It's a good point. In fact, I'm, I think I'm to the place where if I feel light and snappy in my warm-up, I start to worry. In fact, I would take a sluggish, yeah. I would take a sluggish warm-up 10 out of 10 times over a warm-up where I start my jog and I go right into a stride and I'm like, oh, I don't feel anything today. Feeling nothing in your warm-up is been a death sentence to me. Like suddenly then when it hits during the race, I'm like not prepared for it and it goes south quickly. Mm -hmm. I almost worry more now if I'm feeling snappy in my warm-up. I mean, I felt good in warm-ups and had good races. Don't get me wrong. But if I were a betting man, I don't know if I've had a bad warm-up and ever completely laid an egg. Those bad warm-ups generally seem yeah. to go okay. So I don't I don't even know if you can put stock in it. I'd rather a bad warm-up than a good warm-up is all I'm saying. I, I don't know why, but I feel like that typically fares yeah. better for me. It's contrast therapy. Yeah. It's just contrast therapy. If you feel that terrible before you get started and then you get started and you feel better, then the bad of the race feels objectively better or mm -hmm. comparatively better. So it's, it's, it's interesting. In fact, two of my five worst feeling warmups ever were for midday one mile races. And they went well. Both were in July. Both went well. Both one started at noon. One, this one each year starts at one fifteen in the afternoon. You're just not going to feel good warming up at 115 with no shade. It's just impossible. So just don't trust your body. Trust that it will respond once the gun goes off. Don't shortchange your warm up. It reminds me of uh, Ryan Woods the day before San Jose Super, um, where he had the probably one of, the, if not the most dominant performance in many and the men's side in mm -hmm. US National Series races he handed it to the field by minutes and his his day before the race his run on Strava was titled the kiss of death and he said it's not he said he said feel feel too good today for the day before a race or i feel great today kiss of death for my race tomorrow it's like a thing people talk like you don't want to feel too good until your race shoes are on and you're in the race and suddenly you're like oh my god thank god it's there today cuz i didn't I didn't know where it would come from because my run yesterday felt sluggish. My warm-up felt sluggish. And even guys on the very top, it's like a, it's like a thing. Like, you know, you know, I'd rather feel sluggish than good for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. So good. That's good to hear. My plan, Kirk, was to do a 300-meter extended interval at mile pace or goal mile pace or slightly faster 10 minutes out from the race, 15 minutes out. And I was so close to scrapping that interval. <laughs> I was like, no, just, just do it. If you fall apart and die right now, then you can scratch the race, but you must do this interval. And so I did it and I finished and I just sat there like, oh, I'll never race well. And then 12 minutes later, the race started mm -hmm. and life went good. But that we talk about this for a living and I was still sitting there trying to make a deal with myself yeah. to not have to do that final piece of the race prep puzzle. And know what I always find in those uh, those pickups in, in the warm up is you're hitting like race pace maybe in those in those pickups and it feels so laborious and you're like there's no way i can hold this for a yes. mile are you kidding me like i'm out of breath i'm 20 seconds into this thing and it's really interesting but that point right there the blood shunting the la slight lactate flushing the stuff like you're igniting those processes mm -hmm. and you're getting the bad feelings out of the way so that 
when the race comes, that, that door is already open instead of having to force your way through it the first time in the first yeah. 60 seconds of a race. So it's a good lesson. Glad you brought that up. That's exactly it. You don't want to feel it during the first 300 meters. Get that feeling out of the way. All right, should we move to the next one? Please do. Bracken Crackers playbook. I'm going to steal one of your lines. We've set it to nauseum. I'm sure people are sick of talk me talking about being a master's athlete. They're sick of all this, whatever, you know, things we repeat. I, I would be too if I were you but it's a new page in my life, so bear with me, is the pay now or pay later principle, which I brought up a ton. You initially had talked about it more than me. Um, when I have been injured in the past, it's typically because the pressure of an upcoming race has forced me to make a couple of sequential bad decisions because I just got to get to the race in the best fitness. I got to squeeze. I'm three weeks out. I can't afford to miss this workout. I know I probably shouldn't run today, but I just have to, so I'm ready for my upcoming race. And you make that decision two, three times in a week or two, and pretty soon you've tipped over, and you can't go back. It's like, I now I did it. And those are how injuries typically take you out. You make a series of poor decisions because you just got to get there. You got to get, you can't afford the day off. Fitness is going to tank if you do that, Bracken. And you know what? I didn't get to that point this time. I had a race I really cared about. I had issues pop up. I confess the fact that I was riding a fine line, but I still made the right ultimate decision when I was faced with it. Ran one less day two weeks prior, ran two less days the week of the race. Cross-trained in place of runs I wanted to do. Didn't let it mess with my psyche. And you know what? It didn't negatively impact my race one damn bit. If I could tell anybody, like, the pay now principle will not, even if you're you know, the critical zone, you're four weeks out from the race that matters. That training really is going to pay off for you in a month on your race, right? Like that's the time where you really want to be laying down pavement. Dude, do not let a dangling carrot of a race impact your decision to train through something that you know is flashing warning signs at you. And so I did listen to it and I listened to it a little later than I should have, but I did listen to it and, uh, and it worked itself out. And typically it always does. So I paid now. I didn't want to. I really didn't want to, but I did. And so it just was another reminder, like, no fitness is going to be lost because I rode the bike three times instead of run. Didn't didn't happen that way. So just another reminder, like, don't force it. Don't force it. You won't lose fitness. That's it. Just another reminder. Well, there is a hierarchy to a race distance for it mattering. Two race distances. If you're running the 100-meter dash, what you do in the last 10 days leading up matters supremely if it's a 200 meter dash it matters slightly less but it is still very it must be very intentional your last week or two if you're up to a 400 meter and 800 meter you can get by on your last 10 to 12 days maybe aren't ideal if you move up to the mile you might be able to get away with 14 days of not ideal but you got to have something in there to stay sharp and once you get above that things start mattering less and less yeah, there's sharpening that can happen. Yes, there are priming workouts that can happen, but we're talking like half a percent, one percent difference in the last 14 days of training. What you can do, maybe you could argue all the way up to two or three percent. Maybe someone could argue me. You could have a three percent difference in performance on race day if your last 14 days goes perfectly versus if it doesn't. That matters in 100 meter dash. Three percent, you are out of the race. In a 10K, for the average person, three percent is almost negligible. And that's the high end. It might be a 1% difference. In a marathon, a 1% difference is negligible. But what it does do is if you give up that 1% or you try to go after that 1%, I should say, you may not make it to the start line 
or you may DNF at mile 13 mm-hmm. because you didn't get on top of the thing. So remind yourself when you say, I'm three weeks out, I'm two weeks out, I need this thing. I've heard these people even say three weeks out is your most important big workout. It's like, yes, it is your most important, but it's not more important than your body of work. Like what percent can I actually gain by hitting this versus what can I lose? And then it becomes a no brainer. Your 17 mile trail race. What's a half a percent? What's 1%? You know, it's hard to even time 17 miles to hit a hundred percent. So even just good tactics or feeling can make up for that 1%. It's, it's just not the juice isn't worth the squeeze for most people because most people aren't running sprints on the track. And so you can absorb a half a percent or a percent or 2% just by better tactics and showing up healthy. Yeah. Um, the best, what the best ability is availability as they say. And darn right. (laughs) Um, the caveat to this being that you were able to put in a body of work and then suddenly something pops up, like you've had good training, right? And then something pops up. It's not like this broken training for months or years on end because of in and out of injury. We're like coming off like, eh, I was training pretty well. And then this thing popped up. And I will argue that the longer the race, the larger the margin is for uh, error with your training in the lead in. Like when it comes down to shorter races that are running a higher percentage of your max, uh, very small room for error, as you had outlined with your lead in and your training. But actually, the longer the race, the more you can deviate from center and still show up and have the same result, even if your last 14 days aren't ideal. It, it comes through. It, it will come through your underlying fitness, which is what really this boils down to in longer races, is going to show through. Whether you have to spend a little time on the bike in the last three weeks or a month or you don't, you're going to be reduced to your baseline grit by some point in this race, and that's going to be there regardless. Again, caveat being it was preceded with a decent training block or bout. So. If you told me you have a race this, you have a race 12 days from now. And you're not allowed to run a single step until race morning. And then you put a grab bag in front of me of all the race distances. There's only like three or four distances I'd be scared to pick. And it'd be 5K and under. Mm-hmm. 100%. Every other distance I'd be like, all right, my mind's going to tell me it's going to screw with me in these last 10 days saying you'll never be ready, but I'm going to be fine on race day. 100%. It's like 5K and under. If I pick that scrap of paper out, this could be a problem. But everything else, it, it's going to be fine. Couldn't agree more. What's the next one you got? <laughs> I'll take this little pause out here. We had talked about a few things we wanted to touch today. What have we not touched? I mean, I have I have one more or two oh, and more. You... We don't need to take this out. Let them let them listen to us hem and ho over this. <laughs> hemming and hoeing. Uh-huh. You're the only person I've ever heard say that. No, otherwise you wouldn't know the fr- yeah hemming and hawing is a thing I've heard. But you're... oh, I'm hoeing over here. Yeah, <laughs> you're hoeing. Is it hemming and hoeing or hemming and hawing? <laughs> I suppose it's a growing issue. I don't know. I don't really know. (laughs) Okay, that's just unnecessary. Groin, got it. Groin, coin, groin, got it. Fix my wrongs here, Bracken. When I hear growing now, I think of you every time. (laughs) Someone's like, oh, look at those plants growing. I'm like, (laughs) you said plants growing. (laughs) Hemming and hawing. All right, continue. I don't know if I had to describe or try to predict where the phrase came from. Like, what what is the, the... etymology or whatever of hemming and hawing it's hawing i don't know what it means hemming and hawing it's hawing i think you stay with it i'll hold it up it's hawing continue <laughs> every once in a while i slip up bracken jesus criminy i love it go talk <laughs> i don't know exactly if this is a takeaway from any of my recent races but it kind of is and it's the fact that 
One of the coolest things that a regular athlete can have is a completely adaptable engine. Now, a pro athlete, a very specialized athlete, needs their engine to be as good as possible at their chosen domain, and that can only happen at the expense of most other domains. But for the weekend warriors, for the, the people who live their normal life and race on top of it, one of the coolest abilities you can have is to be able to show up and use, get the most out of your fitness in any type of terrain or any type of competition. And we've seen this with Broken Arrow, some OCR people jumping in and sky running combined with uh, a woman who just ran NCAA steeplechase. She came out and did incredible. You saw a bunch of track, road, trail, OCR, mountain people just meet for Broken Arrow, and there were mixed results. And then you see Lindsay and Ryan go off places and get pretty solid results, even if they don't fit the archetype of the people they're racing against. And it's just a cool reminder that you can build your engine, but you could also build it sideways. Like building your engine upwards isn't the only way to build Mm. it. You can also build it horizontally. It's not just vertically and that it can cover multiple spheres. And I like seeing that with people. And it's a cool thing to not have to say no to a race or a workout style because, oh, I wouldn't be any good at that. You go out and say, yeah, my engine can handle that. And I'm sure there's a whole discussion of how do you make your engine adaptable to multiple different spheres of competition. But it's a good aspiration, I think, to people to see if I can make my engine more adaptable. Why don't you explain that further? There might be a few people curious what you mean by like building your engine sideways. I know we're talking about yeah i know what we're talking about here but why don't you just dive into that a little more so backing up a little ways we've had a few pro runners and triathletes come track trail road come over to ocr and have mixed bag of success but early on you see different types of success there are people who are really good for the first two climbs and they hit a bunch of obstacles and they're out. And then there have been a few who come over and can't handle the terrain. They are lightning quick on their terrain, but just can't run uphill or can't run technical or can't descend. And then some that come over and do really well. And I'm blanking on this, this woman's name, but she just finished, I think, her junior, senior year at a D1 university steeplechasing. And she came out and I think took first or second in the vertical K at Broken Arrow. Yeah. Like that is an adaptable engine. She took all this fitness and used it on the course where there are some other track athletes who come out and they'll be there the first 400 meters and then they just fade and they can't use all their fitness on race day because it doesn't adapt to the task at hand. We've seen people go out and do other things. Runners try triathlon, triathletes try running, and some of them are good right away. And others can't use their fitness to their fullest. They don't get the the max out of their engine because their engine can't even engage in the type of sport they're doing. It's rev limited by some other skill component. And we see it with Mount Marathon. Mount Marathon is run every 4th of July. And every year there's college and pro runners that try it. And some of them, like Ali Ostrander, are really, really good at it. And others crumble terribly because they can't handle it. But they come in with massive engines, both of them. But not all of them get to use that engine on race day. So that's what I mean about building it sideways. You have your capacity. But let's say you have like a, I'm a 7 out of 10 engine. If I move sideways to trail running, I'm a 6. If I move to the left to the track, I'm a 7. If I move to the to the roads, I'm a 6.5. Like building it sideways to try to make it a 7 in every terrain. It's not for everyone, but it's a kind of a cool thing to do to have that adaptability. How did Alia Ostrander do at Mount Marathon? I mean, she was the undefeated junior champ there. She would outright win the, the boys' 
division and girls combined as a junior. In high school. And then she came back in high school. And then she came back after college and did a few. And I think she was top three each time against pro like Solomon Trail and Mountain Runners. Ali Oshander was a multi-time national champ in the steeple, I believe few years back yes they called her baby face or whatever she looked real young and she hated that and i also understand why but i believe that's very small but vicious she's a killer. killer um okay i was just curious there um yeah the way you're explaining it would be like let's say you're a 20 minute 5k'er but you're a 22 minute version mm-hmm. of a 5k'er when it comes to the trails and you're this when it comes to ocr and it's like well you can keep your 20 minute 5k and you can always you'll still be the same same speed or fitness there but we're going to bring the everything else up around with it so we can just be more multi-dimensional it's like yeah i'm my top end metric mm-hmm. my thing is still my thing but now i'm not i'm bringing everything back or up to center that's in the periphery of my my chosen skill set and that's a powerful thing question for you then since we're talking about it Aside from the great Hobie Call, who will say was a traditional runner and then came into the sport in their first year in the sport, coming from a traditional background. And since Hobie was brought up in, in OCR, we're going to just exclude him from this conversation because he got to learn it along the way without a ton of competition. Who do you think like Hawk? top five have done it best? Do you think Hawk? Oh, no, sorry. I was just clarifying Hawk. Did you say Hawk was brought up? Or no, you, Hobie. You said Hobie was brought up. Ho- no, sorry, Hobie. Yeah, Hobie. Hobie. He was so early on that it's hard to say, like, if okay. he came in with the competition as it is. Who do you think men in women's field, who do you think's done it best? Their first race or two coming from a pure run background and having it translate. Having a horizontal fitness, we'll call it. I can think of a handful. And I think there's pure running. Or just engine, but yeah. And I, I think Josiah, Josiah Middow had a multifaceted engine to begin with, but he didn't do obstacle anything. And he was successful from the jump. I think Lars Arneson is up there. Uh, but then looking over at the men's field, Ryan Atkins came in in his first one and almost won a world championship. Yeah. I'm sure I'm blanking on some obvious people. Maybe Rebecca Hammond. Yep. Killian was a world champ his first year, Robert Killian. I mean, yes, he was. How do you, how do you beat that? Yeah. You had uh, Emma Cook Clark, for example. The ones, the ones that made it work, made it work, but there were, For every name we're listing, there's four names that didn't make it work. And even someone like Ryan Woods, who made it work, he took years to make it work. There was a time and place where I ran away from Ryan Woods because he was too tired from something he had just done or wasn't good on slop. There was a course I just outran him. Two years later, there was not a course on earth I could outrun him. There wasn't a course on earth I could hang with him for longer than a mile or two. His fitness didn't change. It just moved laterally horizontally i was never under the impression that i was a better runner than him yep but he just couldn't access it yet it's a good case case in point learn he built his fitness horizontally after Mm -hmm. taking his lumps early on um yeah you know how this conversation started is before we started recording i said and you know the crazy thing about this kid that i was able to outlast is that he's got these arrows in his quiver that i don't but his fitness didn't translate to this race specifically because mm-hmm. some i said there's no way i can run 2401 in an 8k right now i'm not going to do it i know my fitness well enough yet how can i beat somebody who can run 445 pace or 450 pace on a cross-country five mile course and the answer is well his fitness isn't built as right. horizontally 
he's very good at his his objected mission, but uh, the horizontal fitness, of course, he's a young guy. Most people's are very narrow. You ran a 800 and 153 and couldn't hold on for a 5K. You were the epitome of not having horizontal fitness. We all were. Mm-hmm. And then you develop that, especially as you age. I feel like you're better at developing that, but I believe that's how that conversation got started. Yeah, it is. And you know that you you see him and you could say, well, he didn't feel at all. And it was hot. So, of course, when he crumbled, you beat him. But you kept him in eyesight the entire time. You wouldn't have done that in college cross country. You wouldn't have shown up to one of his races and kept him in eyesight. He would have been around turns ahead of you. You never would have seen him. Yeah. So right from the start, the engine was different on your course. But the crazy thing about this is if you exclude the very, very, very best of the best, almost every story you ever hear about someone trying to work on a new facet of their fitness rounding it out laterally so to speak they come back and they're a little better at their chosen sport they go and really go in on a skill set and as long as they don't leave the other thing behind they come back more well-rounded and their engine is a little bit more durable a lot of time it's after injury for people they'll go and do a big uh, cross training block or some strengthening of their core or something like that and then they come back and they're better and so it's interesting that early on we we want to specialize to get as good as possible but we over specialize and forget about some of the adjacent pieces of fitness that can make you a better specialist so how many times you see a road runner that will take to or a track runner recently take to the roads run a really good half marathon or marathon and then they come back and they're a monster on the track still You didn't used to see that as much, but now you just saw two women do it. They went after marathon debuts, ran sub 220, spectacular, you know, top five times of all time, and then come back and one just ran within one second of the 5K world record on the track after running a 217 marathon. She just got stronger, never left her speed behind, came back and did the unthinkable, which is almost run a 5K world record like six weeks after a marathon. And it's because they've worked on something they didn't have, but they didn't lose the thing that they had. And then they combine the two together and shockingly, hey, it kind of worked. Who's the other? I know Safan Hassan. Who's the other that did that? Gide just ran 14.05 or something for a 5K. She raced the marathon recently? Gide or Gide? Yeah, she ran 2.17. And and she, she gave it a good fight. She got out kicked by the woman who set the 5k record yeah that was a great race oh i didn't know she, i didn't realize she'd run the marathon recently yeah and that was like four to six weeks prior to that race at around like 217 in a marathon she's she's a monster watching her run too Wild, she huh? is she's fun to watch run she's uh she's aggressive she's and powerful shit. yeah okay um so horizontal fitness that was your lesson yeah uh the other the other big thing right now and i mentioned this as we were talking about my race but it, it for sure brings it to to the surface again for me is, um, you know, after, uh, I raced on Saturday, I didn't do anything on Sunday. We hosted people here at the house and I just did whatever I want, ate what I wanted, didn't worry about working out. And I look and Tyler German, who's 30, who had won the race, went out and did like a 40 or 50 mile bike ride on Sunday. Uh, was out there in the saddle for like, I don't know, two or three hours. And then Monday he doubled eight in the morning, seven at night. And then Tuesday was a quality day on the track already. Here I am. I didn't run for my first time till Wednesday. And taking Thursday off, as we speak again, decided I need another day of cross training. And I'm going to maybe, depending on how it goes, hit my first quality session, a very modified, specific quality session tomorrow, which would be Friday, six days after the race, would be my first anything of quality. And granted, he's more durable because he's running 100, 120 mile weeks. 
the college kid as well, right back to running, mm-hmm. right? But uh, as you age, I have for sure noticed I could have rubbed my nose in this and gone and stuck to schedule Tuesday's a quality day and Wednesday, or at least Wednesday at minimum. And I, I'm just knowing that one, like fitness won't leave if you're consistently on it in general. And two, I will be further ahead in two or three weeks if I rest now instead of push through because rubbing your nose in the dirt constantly only leaves you tired and unable to access the fitness that is already in there. And so it's taken me longer to recover. Mm -hmm. And I'm just, and this is the first time I've just accepted it where I'm like, it ain't that like, I know I need more time. I can't look at the people around me. I can't look at Tyler German. Who's already at 45 miles this week. I'm at seven right now, by the way, seven miles this week. It's Thursday. Okay. My workout's done for the day. I'm at seven running mileage. I've worked out every day, but Sunday, but nonetheless, at some point you have to accept, like I've put so much and all you listening who've been doing this for a long time, decades, I put so much money in the fitness bank over the years. One, I can afford to take some downtime after a race because I still got a bank account. It's full because I've been putting money in it forever. So what's the rush to get back to high-end training, that's only going to make me feel worse. And two, don't recover as quickly as I used to. And it's very apparent when I really swing big. And as the Toby Keith song goes, like, what is it? I'm not as good as I once was, but I'm as good once as I ever was. And it could not be more true. Never really understood that song until recently. That song, I mean, he's talking about a lot of other things in the peripherals, but um I think it's true, man. I I think I can swing as hard as ever. However, like you need to be kind as you age slightly. Like I'm no, I'm not old. Don't get me wrong. I'm still very young spirited, very young at heart, very capable. However, you can't frame current decisions as you're getting older based on decisions you made when you were younger in regards to recovery and training. And that's how you perform well into getting older is that you, you change your methodology, especially post big efforts. And so I'm just like, I'm just seeing all these other guys that are younger doing all the mileage. I think in the top five, everybody else, the two, fourth and fifth were in their teens. I think 19 and 18 or everybody's young. Everybody's out there doing it already. And here I am on my bike again, because my legs still feel like crap. My quads are gone still somehow. All I'm getting at long-winded answer of saying, as you age, you need more recovery. I'm feeling it. I'm listening to it. And your fitness, I promise you, is not going to go anywhere if you take a few extra days of cross training because you have all these years in the bank. These other young guys don't. Remember that. That's a soft, comfy pillow. You've done more work than they have at this point At this point in your life. Mm-hmm. Now you can just you can allow yourself to back off when it makes sense. Uh, that's, that's just been pounded home by comparing what I'm doing to others right now and how my body's feeling and how I suspect theirs is. Mm-hmm. So... That'd be the last big one for me. Well, that rolls nicely into mine, which is more mental based. So I'll kind of clean yours, clean yours onto mine and then take one more little step forward on it. And that is that these big efforts are mentally damaging, Mm -hmm. but they're also mental builders. Coming off the time trials I've done and then this race, it was really apparent that they directly and immediately change your perspective and your outlook on training life and pain in general like you're different for having swung the hammer really hard whether it's a race a time trial just a big workout when you go deep to the well you come out differently on the other side but just like an actual physical wound if you get back to using that wound site too early it doesn't fully close up and then it doesn't form good 
solid binding and then scar tissue and then a solid area. If you use it too soon, too vigorously, it just reopens the wound. And then it's a longer healing process. And I believe the exact same thing to be true about mental scarring from big efforts. Hmm? This race, even just one mile, it was damaging to me. It took a lot of effort, physical and mental, to finish off that race. And afterwards, I was miserable. And I think if I had gone out and tried to hit another workout today, I wouldn't have got much out of it. And I would be gun shy for a little bit. So I didn't run yesterday because I was really trashed. And today, my soleus and hamstrings are very tight and sore. And so I'm doing non-impact again today. And I bumped my quality session back to all I have to do is get it done by Sunday. That's my only goal for the week now is get my next quality session in sometime by Sunday whenever I'm physically ready and mentally looking forward to it. Because getting back into the fire too soon, your old burn's not healed yet. You don't have that callus built up yet. And I think it's important to have a mental callus built up to it. Otherwise, you get gun shy. You get afraid of the flame. If you stay away from the flame for too long, you get afraid of the flame. But if you go back to the flame too soon after being burnt, you're too hesitant to touch the flame again. There's this sweet spot in the middle where you revisit the flame appropriately and each time you can handle it a little better. Yeah, it's you could twist your sunburn theory into many different forms, but it's like if you get a bad sunburn and then you walk out mm-hmm. into the sun the next day, like, nope, not ready yet, going back inside. You do it two days later, nope, not ready yet, that still hurts. Three days later, you're like, I still feel it. I don't think I'm ready yet. It's like our bodies go and our mind, our mental ability, capabilities go through that process it's just not as obvious as a sunburn that hurts when you're out in the sun but you can't handle it and you're not ready for it yet it's just it's a little cloudier and so just can't see it can't see it and so you got to have that you've learned that over time obviously that like too many big efforts too close together suddenly i can't even access my grit anymore because it's still burnt so to speak. Yeah. And then you got someone like Tyler German next to you, who before you guys went on this vacation together was in the tanning bed, you know, twice a week, (laughs) three times a week, getting this great base tan built up. And so on day two, after you guys spent eight hours out on the charter boat fishing, you step outside and go, nope. You watch Tyler just skip back outside to go lay on the beach. And you're like, well, he's doing it. Should I try doing it? But it's like, no, you prepared for this day in the sun a whole lot differently. So you can't treat it the same. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. But yeah, I think I think honestly, the mental availability is bigger than the physical availability when it comes to big efforts close together. I think it's more about the mental mm-hmm. than the physical being ready to embrace the demands of the race mentally. Really do. I know I talk about combat sports probably too often for a running podcast, but I just see that there are so many unassailable truths in combat sports that apply to everywhere else in life. And one of them is the ability for people to take a punch. Like across the board, the quickest way to get knocked out is to lean straight back and not have your feet underneath you. A golden rule is you don't retreat in a straight line because the only way to get away from a punch at that point is to just lean backwards away from it. And when you're already leaning backwards, there's no place for your head to travel to absorb it. You can't roll with it. You can't clench well. You just take the full brunt of the blow and you get knocked out. But a good fighter who leans into it, who's hunched forward, chin down, eyes up, can roll with the punch or lean towards it. And sometimes moving towards it takes the sting off it. You catch the punch before it's at its full extension with its full power. And it's just a really important lesson for a fighter to learn and for any sort of athlete who requires mental toughness to learn is that flinching away from whatever is about to happen is how you get hurt. 
or it's about how you run slow. If you start flinching away from that sharpness of a workout, when you go in thinking, oh, this is going to be really bad. I don't know if I want to go to that place today. You're not going to get there. You're going to get nothing out of the workout. It's like you can't spar hard every day. You're, you're, you're just not going to be able to stand in the pocket with a puncher every single day. But if you have enough time in between, you learned your lesson from the last time and you're excited to get back in the pocket and stay tucked in and move with it. Same thing with hard races, hard workouts. If you're not ready to get back in the pocket, you're not going to get anything out of that workout. A sparring session is no good if you're flinching away every time they even flinch at you. And a workout's no good if you are shying away from the intended pace or intensity because you can't get over what you just went through in the last workout or race. You can't show up to a race thinking, last race hurt so bad. That's not appropriate. Mm-hmm. So that, that mentality of you have to be moving towards your aggression. You need to be moving towards the danger with purpose because that keeps you vigilant. That keeps you safe. Flinching away from danger is the thing that gets you hurt. It's like skiing downhill. So you really have to let go and go to be safe. There are certain things you can't do halfway or it's not effective. And running quality workouts or racing is one of those things. I had an interview that Jess likes to, uh, my fiance Jess, soon to be wife, likes to videotape me before races. She's just like, in the car, what are we doing today, Kirk? Like, I'm like, I'm running a race. What's your goal today? I want to break the record. What's the, da, da, da. and she's like, how are you feeling? I didn't put this video on, on Instagram, although I posted some from the race. And I said, you know, I'm nervous and excited, but more than anything, I said, there's, there's dread. And she said, why? And I said, because I know what I'm about to put myself through and I'm ready for it. But Mm -hmm. I understand what's coming my way right now. And it's that severity of like, I was ready to hurt. And if you're flinching or you're not ready to hurt, when it starts to hurt, you back off. And that's exactly the emotional availability you're talking about. So not to confuse dread because you you're you know enough to know what you're about to get into is somewhat okay. I really do think it is. But being scared mm-hmm. of it, that is different. That's the flinching that is going to cause your race to go poorly. But I think dread's a normal part. They people might confuse the two, but if you if you're if you're just you know too much. If you know too much, you know what you're getting into. That that comes along with it sometimes. At least for me it does. I don't look forward What did we say? Two weeks ago, when you said you signed up for a 5K, mm-hmm. I said, there is nothing on earth that brings the nerves out like a track race. Yeah. And this one mile race, Kirk, I was, and I think I texted you this, like, mm-hmm. I'm having trouble eating this morning. Yeah, you text me. This race means nothing. It's in the middle of podunk nowhere in Wisconsin. Farmland. They don't care about running. They're here for the parade. They think we're strange. It means nothing. There's nothing to be gained here. But I was so jittery beforehand. I had the hand shaken and Love it. tying my shoes beforehand. I was like, get it under control. But it's not nerves for failure. It's not nerves for what if I can't perform. It's nerves of, I know if I do well, where this is going to wind up. Yeah. Like if I hold my decisions till the end and you make it far enough into the race intact, and then you have a decision, you know what that decision is going to cost you in terms of discomfort. And we're not glorifying our races. Like we're a, we're a little speck on the wall in the grand running mm-hmm. universe. But it doesn't change the fact that if you get to that point in a race, you are in your own personal little like glor- glorious hell right there in that moment. It doesn't matter if you run 12 minutes or four minutes in the mile. If you make it to the 1200 point and you start kicking, you are miserable. And it doesn't matter if you break the master's record or not. If you are on your game 
and you're cranking it down the last three miles, having already raced for an hour 25, it's going to be truly terrible. Mm -hmm. And that anticipation of doing well, equaling misery, that's a nerve wracking thing. Yeah, of course there's going to be dread. It's, It's the equivalent of standing there, knowing you're going to get punched in the face. And just taking it. And it's moments mm-hmm. before you know the guy's going to wind up and smack you. And you're going to stand there with your arms behind your back. Like, I know what this is going to feel like. I know it's bad. And I'm choosing to stand here and take it. It's like literally that. Of course you're going to dread that a little bit. That's normal. Nerves are a good thing. Um, and by the way, I don't think you talk about uh, combat fighting too much. Maybe NASCAR, but not not combat fighting. Totally cool. <laughs> <laughs> I heard you're... Okay, we got to wrap yeah. this up because I got to go to... Because I got to go to work, but I did hear that as far as athletes go, Braden is the breadwinner in the house now, potentially. Yeah, so I think I won thirty or forty bucks for this mile. <laughs> yeah, and Braden has won three hundred and fifteen dollars in racing so far <laughs> this year. So I love that he's out earning me as a as a competitor, which means I'm now relegated to just like afterthought in this family. You're passing it on. What a noble thing to do that's right way to go Braden. that's exactly what i'm doing you wanted to add something on and i was trying to wrap us up what was that just the final thought that we have a weird sport that if you do it correctly you re- you hurt more not all sports are like that but endurance sports the better you execute your plan the more you open yourself up for a lot of discomfort mm-hmm. it's it's a it's a very interesting proposition and it's one that does require some mental tenacity we don't want to over glorify oh we're just so gritty and tough but you have to have some of that and so you have to build some of that and it all just comes back to dosing it appropriately and absorbing it and then doing it again but knowing that it doesn't get easier you just get faster yep that's it it doesn't get easier you just get faster you just get earn the right to hurt more intensely later in the race so it's good to know that everyone goes through it those fleet people in the front, they're hurting just as much. They just get to hurt longer into the race because their engine's not breaking down. Yeah. I mean, I looked at the heart rate data from like myself, 175 beats a minute. I looked at Tyler German who won the race, 180 and change average per minute. You think that guy wasn't hurting too? No, he just got to hurt doing it a little, doing it a bit faster than I did. That's, that's the one thing you're just rewarded with like the ability to hurt a little long, a little more, a little more sharply for a little longer before your body caves. It's like a weird system. Like you're not really rewarded for your hard work on the pain scale. And it ends sooner. It ends sooner. There's your reward. Sure. Yeah. Uh-huh. But yeah, everybody's foot's to the flame, whether you're in the front or the back. If you're executing well, uh, you're taking that punch with your hands behind your back and it's glorious. It's glorious. It's, it's rewarding. That's all. Like we're talking about it as like this, this potential storm cloud or this looming, knuckle sandwich but it is the most damn rewarding thing i think i've found in my life so there's something to it so whatever don't shy away from it that's all go ahead now then we're done well my my final point is a mean point to us but it's a good reminder that there are levels to everything uh the guy who won last year didn't come back and he ran 423 last year there you go so i would have been 80 meters behind him and what did tyler jaman beat you by nine and change or so it's ridiculous i think he his great adjusted pace is like 510 per mile he ran like 555 pace with like <laughs> with like 2500 feet of vert i can't even wrap my head around yeah so like we're, we're we're so pumped with ourselves we're so happy with our accomplishments but just please understand that we understand there are so many levels to this thing no matter what level you're at you should be proud of it and there's someone better that's okay. There's probably someone significantly better and that's just fine. 
Couldn't agree more. Whatever's beyond significantly better is how badly I got beat this last weekend. And I'm still sitting here glowing. So whatever. Or uh, whatever. Yep. Yep. I'm staying in my lane. All right. This thing's a wrap. I I don't know. You know, we were all over the map, but we were we were talking before recording today, and we were just bouncing from topic to topic. Bracken and I talking about things, and all getting excited, and we're like, "This is what we need to do today." So, we did a little pivot, and we did this today. But we good, Bracken? We're very good. <laughs> Let's play that outro music. Mm-hmm.